0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane
0: Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe and that you would leave favorable reviews.
1: Our guest today is Robert Verbruggen. Is it Verbruggen or Verbreggen? Verbruggen. Verbruggen. Okay. All right. I should have gone with my instinct. Robert Verbruggen, who is a deputy managing editor at National Review. We're going to talk today about the hottest topic, most up to date policy issue that is facing the nation, which is busing. And of course, this entered the conversation due to the first Democratic debate, uh, which happened a couple weeks ago now, during which Kamala Harris attacked the frontrunner, Joe Biden. Uh, over the issue of busing, which was a big thing back in the 1970s. So maybe we should start with, you know, I think for a lot of folks who are under the age of 50 or so, uh, many of them may have a kind of a hazy idea of what busing even is. I know when President Trump was asked about this, what he thought about the exchange of the debate over busing, his response was, well, uh, I don't, I don't know how you're going to get kids to school without using buses. So what's, what's the big deal? Uh, but that's not quite what busing was, was it?
2: No, no. Well, essentially what, what, what happened was in the years following uh, Brown v. Board in the 50s, schools didn't integrate quite as much as, as one might have hoped. Um, it, it sort of put a stop to um, you know just man, outright mandating that you can't have segregated school, but it didn't do anything to actually integrate the schools. Um, and, and it was very possible. You know, given residential segregation and the fact that black and white populations tend to live in different parts of a city, that blacks and whites would still end up going to different schools. And busing was essentially one of the, the solutions that people came up with for it. Some places it was pursued voluntarily. Harris was in Berkeley and, and there there was voluntary but in some cases it was ordered by the court so what you would have is um, you know court would come in and say you know order busing in a, in a specific school district and kids would be bused to some other school that's way out of their neighborhood um, and it was very unpopular incredibly unpopular with with whites um the survey data were very clear about that and it wasn't that popular among blacks either there was a lot of the surveys showed a, a slight majority in support of it but you still have you know 40 45 percent of blacks saying that they didn't like it and you know and you can imagine you know if you're Living in an area, and all of a sudden, your kid is being you know picked up at dawn and dropped off at dusk to go to some far flung school district uh, when there's a different school down the road. Why that would be very frustrating to you. Eventually, what happened is that it slowly fell off. I mean, I think there, there are some still some busing programs still in operation around the country, but there aren't very many of them. I mean, it's not really a controversial thing anymore. It's not something that we're still fighting about it because it's not being forced so much. Um, so what, that's what was really interesting about this exchange in the debate is that it brought this whole thing back as if it were. a a current policy issue, which it's
1: really, really hasn't been. So this is a subject that you've written about even before this debate on the broader issue of residential segregation or educational segregation. One of the things that I noted from some of your writings is you note that not only was busing unpopular, but it also didn't work very well, either because of white flight or you had other problems. I think you you cited an article from written by a official in the Johnson administration who said... When you're sending kids to schools that are an hour away, parent engagement in the school is going to be uh, very low. You know, there's issues with like trying to teach students from, you know, all sorts of different educational quality backgrounds in the same classrooms. So quality kind of fell off there. It, was, it just seems like it was kind of a big mess.
2: That's a fair way to put it. It was just very frustrating, I think, for a lot of the people involved. And also, I mean, I, and I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that you know this was at a time where you know racism still ran high in a lot of these areas. So you'd have these areas with you know pretty fairly racist white populations um, having black kids bust into the schools. So that 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 was a source of some of the reaction to it. But also, just on a practical level, as you note, know, it was just it was just a mess. Um, nobody was really happy with the way things were going.
1: So I, I'm curious. You know, I obviously am very much opposed to segregation, uh, certainly in any sort of legally mandated sense. Uh, but I also think you know it, it's great to have, in terms of you know what they call de facto segregation or whatever, where there's no there's no legal barrier to having people in. But you know, there may also be there's some research suggesting that there are benefits to having you know some sort of racial map balance or mix to the the students uh, what what is the evidence in favor of that
2: well there, there's there's been a variety of studies over the years um, and this is the kind of thing in social science that's very hard to it, it's it's hard to distinguish correlation from causation and, and to you, know, you have to set up an analysis in a really careful way and you have to have all sorts of different data that hopefully is correct you know, was collected in a, a competent manner but I mean I think the the, the, the evidence is, is fairly clear that especially the initial desegregation that was set off by you know, brown V board was was beneficial to kids, and and I and I think there's some fairly you know, reasonably decent evidence that you know to this day. If um, you know minority kids who are sent to more integrated schools do better, you know part of it is probably that they learn you know more social skills for interacting with whites. You know, obviously, if you're going going out into the American job market, um, being able to you know comfortable with white people and being able to interact with them is a good thing. And also just that you know white white parents bring more resources with them.
1: That's my question: is you know how much of this? So when you're looking at well, let me back up a second actually because I think we need to define our terms. You're talking about segregation as a as a legal matter are kids of different races allowed to attend school together that's pretty straightforward and simple but if you're talking about as a de facto matter you know everyone talks about you know segregation this segregation that but actually as, as i understand it, there's several different ways to try and measure segregation and they can give kind of different answers and it's not always completely intuitive how do researchers or the government or whoever try and decide if a school is segregated or how segregated it is what's the measure there
2: well, there are there are many, um, but, bit, but back when um, schools were initially integrating, there were a lot of studies done that use this measure of you know what percentage of black kids are going to majority white schools. And if you have a country that's mostly just black and white, that that makes a decent amount of sense. But there have been more recent studies that have tried to continue using this, um, and what they find is that schools are quote unquote resegregating. And the reason for that is that we've had you know this massive influx of immigration. Hispanic and also a little bit Asian so if you're measuring the percentage of kids who go to majority white schools and treating uh, you know a decline in that figure as an increase in segregation you're basically relabeling immigration as segregation it's it's really kind of uh, kind of crazy that That So many of these um, researchers are still doing that. But there have been a number of better studies that have used different measures that take account of the changing demographics. One of the more common measures is called the dissimilarity index. When you use that, what you basically find is that residential segregation tends to be declining a bit, um, while school segregation is declining less. It's a kind of steady to to slightly declining. But these claims that schools are actually resegregating and things are getting worse are wrong.
0: So if you're a conservative and you don't like the segregation, whether it's happening by mandate or it's happening uh, organically, is there a conservative policy position that would lead towards greater desegregation?
2: I mean, I, I think so. And I, I did a print piece for National Review, um, I think, late last year, where, where I went through some of these ideas. Obviously, whenever you're talking about conservative education policy, school choice is always at the top of your mind. Um, and there is some a considerable amount of research, actually, several, several different studies of different school choice plans. And it tends to find that that school choice, it's its not a massive impact on the you know, segregation and integration level of these schools, but it does tend to have a positive impact, um, especially if you measure it carefully. And, and you know, take account of you know I mean, changing demographics and pick your comparisons carefully. And there are also some ideas that, that I at least find promising where you could, especially in, in a place that that is you know say very liberal and is, isn't going to enact school choice, ways that you can structure it to make sure that there is more integration than there might otherwise be. The Century Foundation had an interesting report on this a few years back. Um, One of the things they pointed out is that a lot of the places that have charter schools have um, rules in effect that basically only poor kids are allowed to go to the charter schools. So if you relax those rules and and made the charter schools more integrated, you could do that. Also, if you wanted to have a school choice program, you could focus it on the the schools that are most segregated. So you could say, if you go to this really segregated school, you have access to a, a voucher now that... You know, a voucher or a charter school that you can go to. And, and that way, practically guarantee that you're going to decrease uh, segregation because only the kids in the most segregated schools would have access to it.
0: Right. So you could do something like a voucher. So there'd be sort of a, I guess one possibility maybe is to have something like a set aside that a, a certain percentage of people that are maybe outside of the natural district would would be free to come and, and apply for that school perhaps.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are any number of ways you could do it, but I think the the core point here is that, that you can, instead of overriding people's preferences and telling them that the kids are going to be bused to some other school, whether they like it or not, I think you can achieve these outcomes by working with people's own preferences and actually helping them achieve what they're trying to achieve for themselves and not just, not just achieving this broader goal of integrating schools.
0: Right. Because, I mean, some self-sorting makes sense. I mean, while we might want to have... Uh, an integrated society, an integrated community, but in some neighborhoods, that you know, there's there's some value to be a very intimate community as well, right? Where you have, where you talked about the immigrants. You certainly want to get them integrated into society. But there is some interest, right, in, in having a community where they have a common culture. So I would think that, that you know, there's some self-sorting that is perfectly reasonable and has some, some value to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it's I think it's just a fundamental part of human nature that we're attracted to people who are most like us. Um, and it's, you know, unfortunately, either we have you know, specifically racial divisions um, where that plays into. But I, I don't think we're going to get rid of that. We're not going to get rid of the fact that we're, you know, we have our own backgrounds and our own culture cultures and we're going to be attracted to people who are who are similar to us in that way. We're not we're not going to get rid of that. But I mean, sort of a, over a longer term horizon, though, I think race can be a less salient part of that sorting process.
0: Ironically, and I think it was from either the Atlantic or City Lab, which are related, there was an interesting piece maybe in the last week on gentrification. And it particularly given, like I said, I believe it was from one of the, the Atlantic outlets. I was a little surprised um, that they ran a piece. That we're basically making the point that sort of surprisingly that gentrification And almost a reverse process actually leads to some desegregation because you effectively have probably more middle class, slightly more wealthy, probably white people moving back into what have become more traditionally, uh, you know, black neighborhoods. And if your goal is desegregation, that gentrification actually is one way that that happens,
2: yeah there was a i I didn't see that piece but I did see a a study in somewhat a similar vein I think earlier this year. I mean, these trajectories, these, these sort of neighborhood trajectories are really interesting because you can have a very um, integrated neighborhood at one point in, the ta- in time that is sort of on its way from being segregated in one direction to being segregated in the other direction. So I think that that's a very, it's an interesting point And it's also just sort of an interesting process how in some ways integration is a moving target because neighborhoods are always changing in different, different ways. And sometimes they just keep going in the the one direction until it's segregated again.
0: So one of the interesting things from this recent Democratic debate was Kamala Harris seemed to have really gotten a, a bump from the in the polls from the debate for taking on Joe Biden on his prior positions on busing, and then shortly after that she seems to have walked back uh, her her critique on on, on busing. She still seems to be getting that the benefit of that bounce. What's your take on all this, and what does it say maybe about the broader politics? How serious are we even about? About having these policy and these idea debates.
2: Well, I I think, I mean, I, I'm always more of a policy guy than a politics guy, so it, it's always I always struggle to figure out what's going on in terms of the the polls. Um, I I think it's fair to say that she had a line to walk and didn't walk it well. She needed to beat up on Biden, maybe even you know say that that busing had a place, you know, back in the the 70s when he was fighting it. But she went further than that. She said, you know, I support busing. Um, the federal government has a role here. And then when that didn't Kind of didn't pan out for her as she had hoped, I guess. Um, or, or she had some internal discussion or whatever. She she went back on that and basically said, yeah, you know, re- retracted the support for busing and saying, yeah, we don't need busing now. And I think that that can't help but hurt her a bit because she kind of uh, waffled on it. But but it's it, it is interesting that she just scored some points in that debate against Biden and I think impressed people with you know her talent in in beating <laughs> up the guy um, <laughs> and, and managed to hold on to that, that poll bump. I think that's a, sort of a fascinating dynamic there. Right, right. Yeah.
1: From, from a political perspective, I think she did what she wanted to do, which was to, you know, damage Biden, increase her, her own profile. I don't know that she really, there's not a lot of evidence that she either before or after the debate really cared about busing as a current policy issue. It, it is interesting that Paris, in particular, seems to have a habit of taking one position when she's on the debate stage and then afterwards saying, never mind. Uh, you know, there was a forum a couple months ago for the candidates and they asked her about voting rights for prisoners, for felons, right, which is a thing that Bernie Sanders supports. And she's, you know, sort of indicated that she was for that. And then later she said, uh, no, never mind. And then also in the debate when they asked, should private insurance be banned as part of the Medicare for all thing? She indicated that she was for that. And again, and a- afterwards, she said, ah, never mind. So I don't know if that is like you know, beyond the specific issue of busing, which I, I don't think is going to be a major policy issue going forward, you know, does it say something about her, her candidacy or temperament or whatever, that either she gets peer pressured in the moment to taking stands that she doesn't believe, or she gets pressured after the moment and, you know, backtracking, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I've never been in the room when, when somebody was prepping for one of these really high profile debates, but I, I would love it to be a, a fly on the wall when she's preparing for these debates. Because you would think knowing exactly what you believe about, you know, each hot button topic is a big part of it. Um, I mean, she knew, uh, I, mean, I think it was obviously rehearsed what she she said to Biden hitting them on busing. So you would think as a backup to that, she would know exactly what she thought about current policy, you know, whether she, she was saying that we need to bring busing back or not. And, and instead, she goes back and forth on it. It's, it. It was fascinating to me because it seemed to suggest that she hadn't prepped that well. And you you would expect more
0: preparation from a prosecutor.
1: Yeah. Let's turn then to another hot button topic that came up during the debates, which is guns and gun control. It was referenced in the debate, some sort of Connecticut study about changes to their laws. I think it was... Cory Booker, who said something about how there was Connecticut had introduced some new restriction on guns, and it led to a massive decrease in the murder rate in the state. This is something that you have looked at as far as the research that goes into that. Can you just explain maybe kind of the the background there?
2: Sure. Yeah, this is a study that came out maybe four or five years ago. And basically, it makes this really stunning claim that Connecticut enacted a permit to purchase law which means that um, not only do you have to get a background check, but you have to you know, obtain a gun permit and use that permit to buy your gun, whether you're buying it from a licensed dealer or from a private party. Nationwide, you have to get a background check at a, um, a licensed dealer, but not from a private party. And basically, the, the claim is that this law reduced gun homicides by forty percent in the state. I mean, that's a huge drop that um, really ought to be pretty obvious if you just look at the homicide trend line of the state. Um, and what you see when you you look at the actual data is that you know Connecticut's homicide rate rate did fall. The law was enacted in 1995, and crime was falling everywhere. But it didn't fall at, at really relative to national trends. If you look at the national trend in the murder rate and the national trend in Connecticut's murder rate, they look the same. So you look into the study a little bit, and what you find is that they're not comparing um, Connecticut with the national average. Um, what they did is use the statistical technique to come up with what they call it synthetic Connecticut. It's basically a Sort of this weighted average of a few other states
1: that is, are is synthetic um, Connecticut approved by the FDA. Is that? Right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the inspection process is is like there.
1: But what what is synthetic Connecticut?
2: Well, it's basically a, a weighted average of a few other states that before the law went into effect had similar crime trends to Connecticut, and th- that makes a certain amount of sense on its on its face. But what it ended up being was that the law is like. 70%, something like that, Rhode Island. So you, then you look at Rhode Island's murder rate, and you see that right after Connecticut passed this law, Rhode Island had this big homicide spike that no, no one else in the country was having. So they're basically saying that if Connecticut hadn't passed this law, it would have had this enormous crime spike like Rhode Island had, because it's basically using Rhode Island as a control group. It's just is such a bizarre claim that... In, in the funniest thing is they put a chart in the study itself where they compare Connecticut with the nationwide trend and with their synthetic version... And you see that the Connecticut trend and the nationwide trend are very similar. Nothing happened in Connecticut that wasn't happening everywhere else in the country. It's just this this sort of statistical abstraction they managed to come up with that had a different different trend to it. And they're they're using that um, statistical abstraction to make the claim that there was a 40 percent reduction in gun
1: homicides. Well, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem to be all that persuasive so I wanted to ask kind of your thoughts on gun regulation generally particularly when it comes to you know gun homicides or gun deaths it seems to me when people talk about guns there's actually three different problems that end up being conflated uh, sometimes one is you have a general problem of homicide people shooting each other in burglaries or drug issues or uh, you know crimes of passion that sort of thing that seems to be the bulk of homicides within that and and that the trend line there has been you know significantly down since the early to mid 90s say I think the homicide rate's fallen by 50 percent. Uh, there were a couple years there in 2015, 2016 where uh, there was a smaller spike in homicides and there's a lot of controversy about what might have explained that. We can talk about that if you'd like. But, you know, the overall trend is is down there. There's a second separate issue, which, you know, gets a lot of the attention, which is these kind of mass shootings where, you know, you have a person who not as a result of some sort of economic gain or some sort of personal vendetta against a specific person, but just like some ideological or general psychological or other thing wants to go to a public place and kill a bunch of people. That seems to be on the rise, actually. Uh, And then there's a third issue, which is just gun suicides, which doesn't really fall into either category. So first, do you have any thoughts? I know I haven't looked to see if you've written on this specifically, but as far as the causes of the homicide spike of 2015, 2016, is that something that you've looked at at all?
2: It is something that I was looking at um, a few years back, back when we were in the middle of it. Um, I'm not sure that there's been newer research on that. But one one plausible um, explanation for it, um, it was early on dubbed the Ferguson effect, um, the idea that these um, protests against police and, and, and the like um, sort of caused police to tamp down on their their activity. There does seem to be some truth in that. There are, there are um, several cities, I think uh, Baltimore, especially with the Freddie Gray incident, you saw all at once. Um, you know, massive decreases in police activity and massive increases in violence. I don't think that explains all of it, but that was at least one theory that I think uh, deserves to be taken seriously. Some folks were also talking about increased cartel activity, you know, in the heroin trade. I think that's plausible as well. I haven't uh, I haven't seen anything good on that for a while. I think it's important to figure out what happened there so we can stop it from happening again.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, I think some of the interest in that issue has faded because. The homicide rates, you know, have started falling again, and but uh, it's still from a knowledge perspective, it would be kind of important to figure out well why did that happen, so we can try and figure out how to not have that happen going forward. As far as the other issues that I talked about, I, I don't know. Is there, you know, I know, I think it would be fair to describe you as a as a fairly pro Second Amendment guy, but are there any things that could be done to address? some of these different issues that arrive in terms of gun deaths?
2: Yeah, there there, there, are, there are several. Um, we actually just uh, came out with a new print issue of National Review today, and it has my review of Thomas Sapp's book um, called Bleeding Out, which is a, a great book about how to reduce urban crime. And he's, he's a gun control supporter himself, but his his biggest focus in this book isn't guns. His biggest focus is tactics that have been proven to work you know, quickly to reduce violence. Sort of the common thread of, of, of the book is that violence is concentrated. There are specific people who do it and there are specific areas where it tends to happen. And there are various techniques that you know um, police and community groups have, have been implementing over the past few decades that have been proven to reduce this violence without making great changes to laws. So you have things like you know hot spots policing where you, you pay attention to where the crime is happening, and put more police there. Uh, makes a lot of sense. You can also change areas that are high crime. You know, add more lighting. You can also do what's called focus deterrence, where especially if you have a you know some sort of reason to, that you can compel somebody to participate with you if they're on parole or probation. You can you know basically pull in the people who are you know most likely to be violent and. Um, you try to get them help, try to get them services, but also make them make them know that are keeping an eye on you. And modern technology is really helpful in, in that regard because you can actually analyze the social networks where the shootings are happening um, because it, violence tends to spread so that one person you know shoots another person and then that person's friends retaliate. Um, so you can use data to map out these connections and, and see where it's going to you know, where it's most likely to happen next and do something about it. I think that's the, probably the single biggest thing we can do to reduce violent gun violence. I mean, in terms of gun control more specifically, though, um, I've long said I'm a little bit of a squish, I'm a Second Amendment supporter. Um, I don't believe that you know, the government should be doing anything specifically to reduce gun ownership in the general population, but I'm a squish on things like background checks, um, red flag laws, um, things that are basically designed to so have a minimal impact on law-abiding gun owners, but also have the potential to deny guns to people who do harm with them. A red flag law allows you know people close to somebody, a family member, to report them to the police if there's something very wrong so that they can um, you know, have a hearing and have the due process and, and the gun can be taken away if there's an issue. Whereas background checks just that you know if you want to sell a gun to somebody else you know outside of you know however you want to write the law maybe outside of your immediate family or whatever that you have to make sure that they're allowed to have it you have to conduct a background check and that i'm skeptical enough of how how big of an impact it would have that i'm not you know rah-rah about that idea but i I don't think it's unreasonable to ask somebody to make sure that they're not selling a
0: criminal so josiah and i had something interesting uh the past week we recorded on a podcast with a friend of ours received Khan, um the uh, brown pundits and we sort of, uh, we're both uh, it was, white guys. We're both white guys. That's right. We basically reenacted the the recent Sarabha Rami David French uh, first things feud, and uh, Josiah played the uh, played the losing side, and I and I represented David French. <laughs> um, and so I guess we first, and it was, so we had this big conversation about sort of that debate and the future of conservatism. And we ended up talking a lot about National Review. And so, you know, I want to kind of talk about all that, if you will, in the sense of, you know, being there at National Review, I assume that you were sort of on the front row of watching all that. Give us uh, your your impression of that whole debate of what was going on between Sarab or, or Rami and sort of how that was uh, viewed inside uh, inside the halls of National Review. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I don't. I mean, one of the sort of the jokes within National Review is that when something new happens, we usually read about it on the corner ourselves. So I don't know that I have the. <laughs> you know the the front row seat that one might think but i mean essentially to me at least uh, and to i think a lot of people watching it it became very tedious and very confusing very quickly because you have this tweet by sarah and then this article by him basically accusing david french of being too nice something um you know not 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 being enough of a fighter you know of course david french is somebody who's been on the front lines of the Especially the conservative legal movement, you know, filing lawsuits against schools that are violating, uh, you know, rights and and things like that for for a long time. So, to some extent, it seemed to be a debate about civility. I happen to like civility for what that's worth. And then it sort of morphed into this this debate about liberalism that I, I can't even describe for you. I'm not even sure what the yeah, I mean, I, I understand what the classical liberals are saying because that's sort of a very well-established sort of philosophy. I, I've never been clear on what the anti-liberals would like to do exactly. I'm, I'm still – yeah, I've read a bunch of the articles because you almost have to being a National Review employee um, when, when all this stuff is going around. But I, I'm still a little bit confused about what what they would even like to do. So, I don't, I'm, so basically, I'm sorry I can't be more helpful with my – the
0: short version of the <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that I think we're all sort of in that that uh, that position of not quite understanding what that was about, I, I, although I think that Josiah and I both followed it with interest. But, yeah, it was a bit puzzling. I think it is happening, though, in sort of this broader conversation of the traditional conservative movement that that you know buckley's often accredited with starting back in the 50s there's sort of this coalition uh up through the cold war and it's starting to splinter a bit and maybe went from being sort of splintering to donald trump smashing it with a sledgehammer you know from your point of view what's sort of the the future of conservatism and what's national review's role in it going forward
2: well i mean i think uh the the big question is you know is there a Trumpism after Trump, um, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't I don't know. I mean I think he he definitely showed that there's a route to winning you know both the Republican primary and the a general election that that people might not have thought existed. Certainly he's he's gotten a lot of people thinking about populism. I think you know future Republican primaries um, are, are I imagine that some candidates are going to try occupying that lane. Yeah, I mean, and I think we've been having a lot of that discussion at National Review. We have, we've run a lot of pieces about, you know, nationalism. You know, we had the you know, epic debate between John Goldberg and, and Rich Lowry, you know, both on on the corner, and they had a, we had a, an, an idea summit earlier this year where they they, they debated in person about it. Yeah, you know I mean, I think I think the, the purpose of National Review has always been to hash out these intra-conservative debates in an, in, in an intelligent way, and I think we're doing a really good job of that this time around.
1: I would note that, you know, William F. Buckley, his first book was called God and Man at Yale. And the conclusion of that book was that universities should fire all the professors that didn't promote Christianity and capitalism. So, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> degree, on the table. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's a degree to which, you know, the classical liberalism of conservatism, sometimes it's definitely there. Sometimes it can be a little overstated, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair point. Right. What's the next generation of National Review look like? Probably all of our listeners know that uh, Jonah Goldberg is on his way out starting his own venture, although it seems like it's kind of hard to get rid of him. I still see his pieces uh, being published at National <laughs> Review. But, uh, you know, what's the next generation look like? It seems to me this I, I kind of think back to. When Buckley retired, that a very young Rich Lowry, I think age twenty nine, took over as the editor. It seems like maybe with the departure of Jonah Goldberg, maybe there is some opportunities for battlefield promotions. Is there is there a crop of young writers coming up in National Review?
2: Yeah, I mean, we we have a uh, you know internship every every summer. We always have you know great talent in there. We're always uh, you know, looking for new new kids to publish. You know, I mean, and I think right now, I mean, Jonah, you know, his his contributions to the magazine have been fantastic i mean he wasn't uh involved in like an editorial role as much so there's not i mean it's not like there's now an open position that we're hiring for in that sense but i mean I, you know obviously when we lose a, a great talent like jo- jonah and there's sort of just more breathing room and more more space for other other voices to be heard and we're, we're publishing a lot of a lot of stuff by, you know, our interns, a lot of stuff by other other folks who are making interesting contributions. And I think, um, you know, especially, you know, folks like, uh, you know, David French, he's been writing for a long time and he's been, you know, involved in conservative politics for a long time. But he's, you know, especially since the, uh, you know, the president, last presidential election, he's really just exploded in terms of uh, prominence. So I, I think we're, we're bringing a lot
1: of new voices out. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us.
2: All right. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.